We're back to the Neil Haley Show here. And you know, it's just interesting when we get to talk to another broadcast journalist and learn from her and especially her story. And you know, it's just, it's something about how we overcome adversity. And my guest, Kimberly Alexander, has definitely overcame some adversity. She is a former NFL wife that has a very interesting story, but also a story of how we can overcome things and all obstacles, even if we lose the person that we love the most. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Kimberly Alexander. Kimberly, thanks for calling. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's kind of take us down this road. First of all, how you became an NFL wife and the story kind of through that till then learning about what happened. Uh, well, the way I became an NFL wife was rather um, uneventful, in my opinion. But in hindsight, I'm just like, man, I don't know how my parents didn't kill me. Um, I actually met my my late husband right after his rookie season with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I was a student at the University of Florida. We met one weekend, went out the next weekend, and that was it. About a year and a half later, we were married at that point he was playing for the denver broncos and um, we got married had our first son i was still in school i transferred from the university of florida to cu boulder and that started my life as an nfl wife and it's always been interesting because i've had people ask me well what was it like being married to an nfl player and i would always tell them you know i i don't know anything different so to me it was just rather normal football was just his job and um and it pretty much dictated everything we did moving forward of course with our life revolving around his football season and we moved accordingly he was in denver for three seasons uh he then went to the indianapolis colts for three seasons he actually sat out one year recovering from an injury and we thought he'd never play football again but he, in fact, recovered from that injury and ended his career with the Oakland Raiders, where he played for two additional years. So we were with the NFL for technically 10 years, but he actually played only nine. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. So so that process of uh, learning, how did you deal with uh, the, the travel and all the different things that involve the NFL? Were you able to handle it well, in, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think I handled it well just because I didn't know anything different, you know, um, because of his career. I knew that my career was not really going to go anywhere initially um, because I was at the University of Colorado while he was playing with the Broncos. You know, our instructors told us, look, when you graduate from school, you're going to end up being a one man band out in Farmington, New Mexico, making about thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars per year. And. I couldn't do that. I was already married. I already had a son and my life literally revolved around his games. And so while the other students were at school and on weekends planning to hang out and party, I was going home to cook dinner for my husband and, and scout whoever he was playing that weekend. So my lifestyle was just different. I didn't um, I didn't realize how different it was until now that I look back on it, especially because at the time I was only about 22, 23 years old. And when I look at my sons who are now 23 and 25, I'm like, man, I can't believe we were making the decisions that we were making at the age that we were. But that's just how our life was. And, and I don't regret anything about it. 
You know, Kimberly, it's interesting. We always look at the NFL athlete, meaning the the player, not the wife. And especially if they're young as well, going through that process and how they deal with things. And especially if they can't go and do their careers because of their husband and having to settle very early that their job is to be at home in a way. And there's not really great resources, would you agree, available for them to understand their role, especially if they are part of some pretty good money, depending on you know, the athletes and different things like that. So I just think it's something we don't focus on is the significant other of that player, right? Well, yeah, you know, back then, I mean, we learned pretty early on that financially, it just didn't make sense for us to work. I mean, not only was it an issue with the schedule, but just tax wise, you know, you're getting beat upside the head if you look at his salary and then you look at your salary and then you have to add in, okay, well, do I pay someone to watch my kid while I go to school? I mean, it just made no sense. But the difference between what life was like when I was an NFL wife, as opposed to how it is now is to me, social media is now like a complete game changer. And I am loving seeing these young wives who are now taking the initiative to create their own identities and their own brands and build something up so that when football is over, they do have an opportunity or they have more of an opportunity to have some type of career after their husband's career ends. Yeah, that's so true because it's like um, they are able to become a brand themselves and you didn't have that opportunity and they're mm-hmm. able to utilize their the platform as the first wife in a way in the kind of like, you know, president, an NFL athlete, an NBA athlete, an NHL athlete. There's such a huge, you know, um, just image for them that the wife now has that opportunity to really make a difference philanthropically in all these different ways by having that their own platforms. And I agree. I see that in TikTok and different places where they're out there and it's tremendous now. So we've had heard the story about you being an NFL wife, but then things really went down uh, based on a, a tragic situation, right? Yeah. Um, a couple of years after my husband retired from the NFL and the way I always describe it was um, his last game was the infamous tuck rule game between the Oakland Raiders and the New England Patriots. And after that game, um, he just, he didn't want to play football anymore. And he was one of those players that was able to walk away from the NFL without issue. Um, There was no period of transition where he didn't want to, you know, he didn't know what he wanted to do with himself. He left the game and started an energy conservation company, went into real estate and life for the most part was great. You know, he started coaching our son's, um, sports teams they were both playing football and baseball and basketball and running track and so it seemed to be pretty easy going on being able to leave the nfl for him but a couple of years after he retired he started complaining about pain in his feet and he would go and visit different positions trying to identify where this discomfort was coming from and they all kept telling him well of course you've got pain in your feet you've been playing football since you were five years old so they were always very dismissive of it and it wasn't until he was on a flight on his way to costa rica to play golf with a friend of his that he became sick during that trip his friends called a physician into the hotel 
that doctor in Costa Rica was the one that did blood work on my husband and discovered that there was something extremely wrong. And within about a week, he was diagnosed with an incurable blood cancer called multiple myeloma. Oh my. And what symptoms did he have for that cancer? Well, he really didn't have any outside of the pain in his feet. And that's kind of the tricky thing about myeloma and why I've been such an advocate for the disease ever since, because for the most part, the symptoms can be very benign. It's things like anemia, um, discomfort, like it's just nothing that's really blatant and in your face. And then the even strange, stranger part about it is that myeloma typically affects people who are twice his age. So he was diagnosed with myeloma at 35. Back then, the average age was 65 to 70. So it was very rare for him to be diagnosed with myeloma at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And wow. And th for so the process didn't last long, right? Till he passed on, right? How long? Did it <laughs> no, it, it was about, um, it was almost five years. Oh, five years. Um, okay. He, yeah, yeah, he, he had a, um, a stem cell transplant, which is quite common for myeloma patients or, you know, in patients of other blood cancers. And that gave him a little time. The issue with myeloma is it's incurable, but it does go in and out of remission. And patients, especially nowadays, because there are so many new treatment options, they're able to live with the disease as long as physicians can find a good balance with the medication. Back then, there weren't nearly as many treatment options. And unfortunately, when Elijah's cancer was initially discovered, it had advanced a lot. And so, um, unfortunately, in, in March of 2010, I was actually in the middle of having a conversation with him. He wasn't feeling well that morning. Being his caregiver, I was quite used to the ups and downs of myeloma. And I'd already reached out to his physicians, you know, say, hey, something's going on. What should I be doing to try to help him feel better? And the physician asked me to get him ready just to bring him on into the hospital because something was very wrong and I just didn't know what it was. And sadly, I wasn't aware of it, but my husband was actually in the process of having what I believe was a stroke. And I ended up losing him that day from an aneurysm. And so it wasn't the cancer that directly took him but it was like the side effects of the treatment. So I share my story so that it helps other people who might find themselves in the same position. Um, it was devastating. I was 37 years old and our boys at the time were 11 and 13. And so it's been quite the journey just trying to juggle all of the experiences that I've had in a very short period of time. Oh my goodness. So how did you, especially you were going to school and then mm -hmm. all these different things. And then you're used to being a mom and, and, and supporting your husband to then knowing that he's no longer here. I'm sure that there was definitely some insurance available and different things and the NFL uh, pension, but still you have a long life to live. Kimberly. Mm -hmm. So life after your husband, how, what have you done? Well, so immediately after he passed away, I um, I took over the nonprofit that he started because I promised him that I would keep that going. During his recovery from his stem cell transplant, he let it be known that he wanted to help other cancer patients, especially kids who had cancer. And so I attempted to keep his nonprofit going. 
um, I the only background I had in the meeting was broadcasting. And so I was trying to figure out if there was a way to, to get back into that field. And um, I actually had an interesting set of circumstances by being blessed with amazing parents. My parents who had been divorced since I was two years old, they were living in Florida. I was living in Dallas. Both of them picked up and left Florida and moved into my house to help me raise our sons. So my mom moved in upstairs, my dad moved in downstairs and them allowing me to help me figure some things out by watching my sons and helping me raise them allowed me to help, you know, just find my purpose, which is now to not only help cancer patients and, um, and caregivers, but to also create a, uh, a health communications company recently and hopefully within the next few weeks launch my own podcast. Okay. All right. So and that will be for another time conversation for sure. But uh, you're also involved uh, not just in that area, sports too, right? Sports Mm -hmm. broadcasting. Can you explain a little bit of that? Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting part about my connection to sports is that When I was a senior at CU Boulder, um, I did an internship at the NBC affiliate there. And being the wife of an NFL player while working in media was really tricky because I saw how the media would sometimes kind of interpret what was going on in the sports world. And I was a little bit sensitive. I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit sensitive. And I somewhat started to regret um, going into media because I saw it differently. And so when Eli passed away, um, I started working with a gentleman here. We have a a show in Dallas called The Golf and More Experience. And um, I don't really care for golf as much, so I provide the and more experience. (laughs) But my my perspective is different because I have a closer connection to pro sports. You know, not only was I married to an NFL player, but our youngest son is um, actually part of the New York Yankees minor league system. Um, He was drafted out of high school a few years ago. And so having a pulse on what's going on on the, I guess, somewhat inside component of sports just allows me to share my views on things that are different from the typical sportscaster. I guess that's the best way to put it. I, I think it's definitely the best way it's definitely to put it, but it's awesome to hear the, you know, the story and uh, wow. And uh, where you are today. And so the podcast, do you have figured out what the podcast can be about? You said you started a media company. So is that all based on the nonprofit, the media company? No, it wasn't. Um, I've always stayed within the cancer space with, um, the nonprofit. So I, I ended up actually shutting down my husband's nonprofit. And then I joined the board for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which also helps myeloma patients since they cover all blood cancers. Um, and then I started a company called Kim Connects because I love to partner nonprofits with retail brands and create charity events. So I've done, I've done that. COVID kind of shut all of that down last year and I'm looking forward to getting those events going again. And um, my goodness, I, I lost my train of thought. What else were we talking about? The, the, uh, the media company, right? The, well, it's a, huge, a health communications company where we oh. are creating content for healthcare providers and um, hospitals, physicians, pharmaceutical companies in order to connect them with minority communities to 
help eliminate health disparities. One of the things I've learned in this cancer advocacy space is that there are a lot of minorities that don't have access that they should. They, they don't, don't have the information no. that they should. And so I'm really sensitive to that and wanted to help make a difference in that space. That's great. So you're creating videos for them? and, and Well, it's, it's more like creating um, programming, like different types of content for them to connect with the community. So sometimes it's video, but for the most part, it tends to be, how can I explain it? Um, just programs and information, providing them with resources so that they will know where to go, who to talk to, how to go about attaining that information. Sometimes it's video. Sometimes it's just something that they can find on their computer and read in their own spare time. And that's definitely not connected to the nonprofit. So that's another thing in itself, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Awesome. You have all these things going on. I have a and lot I, going you, on. Exactly. Well, that's good. And uh, I'm sorry again for the loss of your husband. And I think you're definitely having his legacy live on through you and all the amazing things you're doing. And you see now how you can help other people that have, have lost mm-hmm. a loved one through cancer. And you're really pr- providing a great difference. So where can people donate for the fo- about the, for the foundation? I know you have a couple websites people can check out, right? Well, yes, I would encourage anyone listening who wants to help to make a donation to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. They are a national organization. There are local chapters that you can support. I'm a big fan of all of the things that they're doing in the blood cancer space. As far as connecting with me, I have a website. It's KimConnects.com. I'm also on social media. My handle is pretty much the same on Instagram and Twitter. It's the Kim Alexander. And um Shut me down. I'm I'm always here and open to being a resource to helping anyone that needs help in terms of, you know, trying to navigate the cancer space or if they've got any questions about media and branding, I'm I'm all for it. Well, we appreciate it and uh thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, you're listening to Neil Haley's show and we'll be back in just a moment. Celebrity slots. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. We're here again now finally in a new one of my studios, my office here in Pittsburgh, and my first ever interview was someone from Clubhouse, which is crazy because literally I've never met anyone physical from Clubhouse, been on for six months. We've all talked about it so many times on my show. Michael Giuliano. Michael, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. Hey, we're, we're excited to chat with you and basically want to kind of just jump right into how it all started. I guess, did you always want to be an entrepreneur growing up? Uh, I didn't. I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to play for the New York Yankees. Uh, my dad um, worked in Manhattan, so product of New Jersey, New York area. And my dad put an unbelievable amount of time into us to be great, whatever it was. And he taught us through sports. Um, so what I wanted to be when I grew up was a New York Yankee. Uh, later in life, I happened to play be- baseball, basketball, football, track, 
and um, my middle brother played basketball uh, and that was his sport and uh, my dad toughened me up and uh, put the discipline and I like to hit people so uh, I ended up playing a little bit of football in college. A little bit of football in college interesting so you're a sports guy and I think sports in so many ways is fits so much with entrepreneurship because you're setting goals for yourself in sports and we'll get to that soon so soon enough so you pick the sport of football what position you play in when you want I played defensive back and um, I was able to run pretty fast forward but uh, not too bad backwards and I can turn my hips and like to come up and hit people so that's what suited me uh, my dad used to tell me I should have been a quarterback um, and I think I would have had uh, a more fun college experience if I did, but uh, just played defensive back. And uh, at that time, I'm six feet. I was playing 200-something uh, pounds and um, ran, ran a nice little 40 and could uh, lift some weight. So uh, got to play a tiny drop a little bit early and uh, got hurt, and that was it. And uh, I'm glad I studied. Uh, I majored in industrial and manufacturing systems engineering at Ohio University, and uh, that's kind of kind of weird because that is the nerd of the nerds, which is one side, but then the other part of your day, you're knocking the hell out of people that are playing on TV or on Sony PlayStation video games. So living the two extremes, uh, a jock can't be smart, and a smart guy really can't be a jock. So interesting, but uh, it, it, it shaped who I am. Were you always that focused in academics? Uh, I believe I was. My, um, my mom and dad had high expectations for all of us. Uh, my dad told me, my middle brother, my youngest brother, the exact same thing. My mom told us, you could do it. And uh, school came first. Uh, we weren't allowed. The expectation was set unbelievably high. But uh, I think what my parents instilled in us all is family, uh, delayed gratification, hard work, and just to outwork people. And when we were little, uh, I could tell my dad, hey, I had this many points. And he'd say, you play in the suburbs and you have a right-handed game, a left-handed game. Or I could play baseball. And uh, he said, well, it's not AU. But that was his way of saying there was always somebody bigger, faster, and stronger. And, you know, that's what the truth is. You might be the, the cool kid in your neighborhood, but eventually you all run into each other. You could have a state title, you could have records, you could have everything, but then you bump up to college and the guy next to you was the exact same person. They were the biggest, fastest, strongest. So there's always somebody bigger that can knock you on your ass pretty darn quick. So understanding and having a, a, a very, very vivid, brutal, brutally honest reality um, came early. I didn't always like the delivery style of it, but um, it definitely shaped uh, my view. You now get into being a professional. Um, same thing from the same person. You better get tough. There's international kids and there's this and there's that. Uh, you know, how the hell did you work for Intel? You, you didn't study microchips. So the same type of delivery. I didn't always get why it was, but, uh, you know, a little bit of Mr. Miyagi to Danielson type thing. And, uh, you know, between my mom and my dad, it was academics, and you're going to make more money with your head than you are with your ass. So you better outwork everybody. You better not be uptown chasing girls, doing crazy stuff. And it was time management, and it was discipline. And that uh, that came the rigidity, um, 
the focus, the competitive nature uh, came 100% from my dad. So that's where it came from. And that's interesting. It's always looking at my father again was a very, very brilliant man, passed away a year and a half ago and talking about fathers. And he was number two in the Naval Academy when he went to the Naval Academy. He went to MIT and uh, brilliant. And I think that I took a different route than you. I really didn't build my academics to go into back to my master's degree to be a teacher. But then from there, I just am constantly learning and trying to learn from the best people and explain things and teach others. And it went from teaching and tutoring to entrepreneurship and helping others and be able to break down things in products and projects and everything. And in interviewing over 7,000 plus people is not hurt at all either because you learn from so many genius people that you've talked to and developed. But I, I love when you have that work ethic, you understand what to do and do it. And when you were trying to balance athletics and academics, that's challenging regardless of who you are. I went and, I mean, I played college basketball at Western Maryland and and then also was, you know, trying to balance it even when I was a professional wrestler. It's hard to, to balance academics and athletics. Does that also help you in your work ethic as well? I think what it does is time management. So you have, um, there's 24 hours in the day, there's 168 hours in a week, 60 seconds in a minute, you know, all of that. We have the exact same amount of time. Everybody does. It's how you choose to spend your time. Are you productive or are you busy? And it feels good to be busy, but pr productive is, um, you know, what, what comes out in the wash. So I knew, um, if I may give you just a day in the life of college, up at 4.45, you better be over on a mat, walking on your hands, doing plyometrics, somersaults, all that stuff. So that's 5 to 6, 6 o'clock to 7. Um, you would have Olympic powerlifting workout, Olympic track workout. You maybe go grab some breakfast and over to class at 8. Uh, physics, chemistry, um, every math that is available, statics, thermodynamics, uh, game theory, uh, all the 20-letter all the Scrabble words, and then maybe you eat lunch. Then you go over, get taped up, 2.30, 3 o'clock, you're knocking the hell out of some really big, fast, scary-looking dudes, and you do that till about 7. You go back and you get about a half hour to eat, and right back watching individual film, so just a coach kicking your butt on everything you ever did wrong for the day down the footwork. Then you're watching team, and then you're watching the upcoming week. Uh, so if you're, uh, at that time, Tory Holt was over at NC State, you're watching how Tory Holt lines up in formation, and if he's leaning to a side and it's third and this, down in distance. So you're watching tons of game film, uh, probably the, coolest film I ever watched uh, and he's now in the Hall of Fame but uh, he was over at Marshall it was Randy Moss we watched game film on him and it's hey when when his inside leg is up or inside leg is back or whatever he's running a slant they're running the fade so it's constantly studying and observing film and breaking down those details so when you when you do get to play uh, if you if you happen to be standing across from those types of guys, you know what is going to happen before it happens, so being prepared. And that was that's football and engineering in a nutshell. Notice I did not say, go chase girls, 
go drink and get drunk. I've never been drunk in my life. I've never tried drugs. And I've never been drunk in my life. So the college experience, mine was wake up, work hard as hell by seven, be physically exhausted from the hardest workouts, powerlifting, sprints, stadium, you know, all that stuff. And then go compete with a lot of kids that were international. And the difference in engineering from other professions is a lot of the people aren't kids. They're 20 something years old and they went to India Institute of Technology. They went to uh, major universities, but they're coming over to get the American degree. So they already were had their little 18 year old moments when it was like, oh, I miss my mommy's cooking or, oh, my little high school girlfriend. And they don't have that head trash. You are competing against older kids. So the misconception in the engineering world is that uh, the international students are smarter. Um, no, they're just adults. They already have a degree. And it'd be like if you went back to kindergarten and started over. So that's why it's so competitive as a, as a U.S. Uh, or, or an American. Um, so to be able to compete with the older kids there uh, was also you better have your stuff together because a weed out rate in engineering is probably three quarters before your second year. And that's every school in the United States. And a lot of it's not talked about. Look at the importance of science and mathematics and how they're forgetting about that so much in schools and seeing the importance because the bottom line is the more you're technical, that's where we're going. Technology and then engineering, any type of engineering or anything that's a very difficult degree is going to be one where it's competitive or it's international competitive and people are coming in. You're right in that manner. So after you graduated from undergrad from Ohio U, what made you want to go on for your master's degree? Is it, what was your thought process of that? Well, um, what I did actually, and this can go to career, I did not get my master's degree after. Um, I co-opted three different places and I thought I was going to have a job and kind of follow what my dad did. My dad worked for Norfolk Southern Railroad and he was in logistics and he always used to tell me everything has to move. My co-op that was the most uh, prestigious one was with Yellow Roadway who moves everything on the roads. So, you know, when you grow up, everybody wants to be like their dad and he provided an unbelievable life for us. Uh, and my mom did too, but in transportation, the market's up, you did well, market's down, everything always had to move. So when I, I did get an offer from them and um, we were, uh, I was one of the who's who at the university and we we're at an engineering conference and they sent the top couple kids to go watch a Yankees Indians game. So I was like, I get to skip school, go with the professors and watch a baseball game and get in, not get in trouble. Sure. And then I got to be in Cleveland, which is where my parents lived. So I get to go and have my mom's spaghetti and meatballs and, you know, uh, see my little brothers and stuff. So I thought it was great. We're cutting through a lobby to go to the baseball game and there's a career fair. Now I'm dressed in a pair of flip-flops. I got a five o'clock shadow, a Yankees hat on in Cleveland. My dad probably told me, shave your face. You're never going to get a job in your life. What are you doing? Uh, my mom would say the same thing. What are you doing? You can't have this and that. And, you know, you're feeling yourself. You're a little young. You got to do a little stuff, piss off your parents, not shave for a day or two. Uh, but we're cutting through the lobby and there's a career fair. And... Time just stopped. It was Intel. It was number one at the peak of the tech rally. So this is in the 90s. 
Intel was the most profitable tech company on earth. They were fortune number one. They made the engine that made wow. all of this stuff possible. So my friends were giving me crap and they said, there you go, big shot, go get the keychain. And I remember somebody telling me that. And what for the listeners, the people that go get the keychain means we'll call you, not the other way around. So I got in line and they're like, uh, what are you doing? You got on t-shirt, cargo short, baggy, double XL cargo shorts, flip flops, baseball, Yankees hat in Cleveland. They're like, they're going to kick you out of the career fair. I wasn't even registered. I didn't have a resume on me, nothing. We're walking, physically walking to the game from the hotel. And I got in line and it says PhD and masters only. And I got in line and you start to see after a little bit, the line inches up, it inches up some more. And you had kids that were like yourself today, suited up, uh, whether it's Gucci or Armani, whatever, whatever you're, whatever you're wearing today, uh, Brioni, uh, you know, they, they looked like you, um, not like what I was dressed like, and they were putting their best foot forward. And these are kids that had eight years of school, six years of school, uh, from India, from it's everywhere. And PhD and master's only. So I get up to the front and the two people said, they just, they were just smiling. They said, you, can you read? And they were serious. It was insulting to them. Can you read? I said, I absolutely can read. And they said, uh, PhD. And I said, I don't have a PhD. And they said, master's. I said, no, no, I don't have a master's. And they said, undergrad. I said, no, I'm going to be a senior. And, but let me tell you about myself. And what they liked about that is that in technology, they care about your performance. They care about how you think. And later in life, the person told me, I was able to see convention, understand a path forward, and say, I don't care what convention is. I'm going to put a result and get it done. And I have to see it before it's there. So they said that that's why the first interview happened. So it was, here's the rules. I don't care. Those are your rules, not the, the rules. In that industry, you have to think of things that nobody can imagine. And then, as Andy Grove said, you have to put the wings on the pig, not the lipstick on the pig. So Intel is making stuff that you can't even imagine four years before people can even conceive it. You have to make it. And then it has to get out. And I have to make a product with a team of people that's so good and so addicting that you have to wait outside and camp in the snow for an iPhone or an iPod at that time or a laptop. So they saw a behavior, a trait, a confidence. And then, you know, I told them about myself and they said, we have a room for two and uh, we're going to be doing real interviews. Go find your resume and come back and see us. Well, I didn't even have a resume. So I went back, I interviewed with them. Uh, they flew me out to an alfalfa field in Phoenix, and they said, this is going to be where mobility begins. And it turned into uh, Fab 22, which now is Fab 12, Fab 22, Fab 32. Um, I apologize. That's my fault. Uh, what an idiot. What an idiot I am. I apologize. Um, I'm so sorry. So we're, we're, we're out there and um, they said, this is gonna be the future mobility and there's gonna be this wireless stuff and there's gonna be this Bluetooth stuff and there's gonna be system on it. All this stuff it's gonna be, your, your uh, music's gonna be, and you know, nobody believes it. 
but that's exactly what it was. So interviewed for two days, I fly back home. It was in the summer, uh, and then um, they extended an offer to me six months before I graduated college, or yeah, before I graduated college. So I'm in thermodynamics, 50 zillion. I'm in vector trajectory coordinates, which is rocket science. I'm in uh, you know the zillionth math. I'm wondering if I'm gonna pass my damn classes and I put a deposit on a house to get built to go live on the other side of the country and I've never been out there and uh, I did graduate. And uh, on Thanksgiving, uh, or day before Thanksgiving, I took my finals, I drove up, I ate turkey with my parents. The following morning, I went with my best friend and uh, we drove out to Phoenix and I started the following week at the Intel Corporation and I was a microchip engineer. I was one of 12 industrial and uh, manufacturing systems engineers for them and uh, we had to physically make a plant and made the chips that go in everything that you know of. Wow, so to get land that job, if you wouldn't have gotten in line. So it's important to take the opportunity by the horns and go. Like if it, an opportunity happens, you shouldn't pass it up. That's what it sounds like, what you did. Well, people have these handcuffs and it's all imaginary. Somebody says you can't do it. That's their idea of what you can do. It doesn't mean it can't be done. Right. So the attitude that I've had since I've been little, people always, they don't take responsibility. They go, why me? And yeah. my attitude is why the bleep not me? I've met so many people and I'm sure you have too, that you see are what society would deem successful and you go, that guy's not that smart or that person's not that whatever. And it's because they didn't have those handcuffs of I can't. It's instead of I can't because it's I could if. So it's how you can picture something, set a goal, set an end state and work backwards toward that goal. And that goes back to sports. It goes back to being in the yard and my dad knocking on the table saying, get tough, get tough, get tough. Um, it's, it's hearing that, that internal dialogue that you have is, hey, get, stop watching the idiot box. He used to call the television the idiot box. He goes, somebody outside's running right now. Somebody outside's doing push-ups right now. Somebody out there's dribbling with their left hand. Somebody's doing this. And that's when you're a little kid. Um, I didn't always like the delivery. Sometimes even to today, I don't like the delivery. But the message was, was painfully correct so important and we talked about again that opportunity when opportunity knocks let's talk kind of summarize intel working there at that time period you said and you moved up the ladder tremendously in that company from starting out just out of with your undergrad what kind of give me some career highlights because we could have an interview just on intel alone for sure and we have more stuff to go um, what, what they focused on, so you had Andy Grove. Andy Grove uh, is probably the smartest person and most talented person I've ever met or done work with. And he was inspirational. Now, you'll hear about jobs or you'll hear about somebody else, but if there was no engine, there, none of this exists. If you don't have a chip, you don't have the phone. If you don't have a chip, you don't have a laptop, you don't have the server, you got a car with no engine. That's the guy that made the chip. Now, he was a very humble guy. He would come sit on your desk and talk to you and tell you, you know, we put the lipstick or we put the wings on the pig, not the lipstick. We have to make the pig fly. And we have to do it before anybody else even knows 
you know, anything possible. So I would say the, the theme of Intel, which people are still trying to copy today, is how to work as a team. So they have technical expertise and, and uh, breadth and depth, and they're able to get diversity. And it's not black and white, male or female, um, old and young. It's diversity and perspective. So if I skip fast forward a little bit and I had some direct reports, they said, I don't want anybody on the team that played football. I don't want a Midwestern guy. I don't want a guy. And I don't want anybody that looks, acts, or talks like you. We already have one of you. We want somebody else. Now we want the skill set to be at or above. And the expectation when you're there is they say two and five. Your job as a manager is to do two and five. Everybody that you hire, your goal and your job is to get them two promos in five years. Okay? So that's like going out to USC. If you were to talk to uh, Pat Rule, they don't leave the state of California unless they're going to be a number one draft pick. It's the same idea. That's interesting because you're learning the corporate world and how you had to perform in the corporate world. You're making stuff that has never, ever been thought of and then manufacturing it. And you know what's going to happen three, two, three, four years before anybody else does. There were times that I would tell my younger brothers or even my mom. My mom, I could probably go rob a bank and she'd say, I, you did a great job robbing a bank, right? <laughs> um, so that that's my mom. Uh, I would told her, hey, you have a six-disc changer in the basement, Pioneer six-disc changer, and they have a 500-disc changer. And I told her, there's going to be a thing about the size of a deck of cards that has all of that. And she would say, that's nice, Michael, which the way that she said it was, mm, mm, okay, right? Um, so I would tell my dad, I'd tell my mom, I'd tell my friends, stuff that I was working on, no insider trading or anything, but hey, this is what's up next. And nobody even believes you. Right. But you have to go do it, and you're making it happen, and then you're scaling that, and then it's going to be out for Christmas for everybody. It's going to be in every household in the world. Yeah. So uh, a very interesting place. And nobody is individually that strong that they can do it themselves. That's an international company that does the hardest stuff, maybe 85 to 100,000 employees. And the discipline, discipline, the structure, the rigidity, the teamwork, not a group of individuals, but a true team uh, is what they got right. It is not they let some people wear jeans and flip-flops to work in the 90s, and that's cool, and that's what makes it happen. Uh, that's been bastardized to today. There's all this work-home work, work home balance and work-life balance. That's not what they got right. They got right the process. So if you look at people that I admire, um, the Nick Sabans, they have a standard. They have a process. They put the right people on the bus. They get the wrong people to bleep off the bus, and then they put the right people in the right positions, the ones on the bus. That's what Intel does. That is why nobody has been ever able to beat them, duplicate them, and maybe at best kind of copy them. And um, you see a lot of the tech companies, they still don't have that type of process. Gordon Moore was one of the founders, Moore's Law, that it's going to double every so often, the, the power and the computing stuff. That stands true to today. These are people that made laws. These aren't just people that, uh, right. hey, they're pretty smart or 
uh, you know, so-and-so got a lot of money. These are people who this idea came out of those guys' heads. So when you're around them, they more or less did invent the wheel. So if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what does. So the master, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, when did you go for your master's degree when you were at Intel? No, I didn't. Um, so at Intel, uh, you had the option, you could go to Stanford or you can go to uh, ASU, which was the W.P. Carey School of Business. And I, uh, I was doing the nerd stuff. So I was doing manufacturing, making and breaking stuff and studying really complicated systems. And, you know, to this day, it's prestigious to work and then go to a rank school and get an MBA. But I didn't feel that that was useful to me in that I was negotiating contracts and installing capital equipment and doing stuff that nobody did. I didn't think that it would be good for me. So I did want to get a master's, but later in life, I wanted to get a master's in engineering and focus more on data analytics, uh, quantitative, actually quantitative analytics. I wanted to learn about neural networks and machine learning and business intelligence and artificial intelligence. And I wanted to know how to get demonstrated actuals and large data sets. So looking at a population and understanding how and why they think the way they do and turning data into information. And with that information, you can go make a market. So instead of marketing, you could be a market maker. So when you launch a product, I know what your habits are because of statistically determinate math. I know that you like this color and I know that people in this area like that. So I know what you want and I can put out what you want. I know better what you want than you know. And you is a very large population. Right. So if I'm selling something that costs this many dollars, I know that if I get the total addressable market and I put a dent in it um, and I'm solving a need, making something bigger, stronger, faster um, through predictive analytics, I know what you're thinking better than you do. Uh, it's like when you get on uh, you get on your phone, it's going to tell you what you want because it knows all the, the, the different things you do. So you can go make things before they even exist because you understand the, the math. That doesn't mean you're smart. That just means you get math. And people don't understand that. People think you have the engineers. They go make their little pretty sculpture in a lab and they never show it to the world. And then they go tell people, I need money. And then they tell people, well, this is going to go everywhere. Right. Well, they don't have a market. Nobody likes being sold. That's true. Nobody does. And if you look at Intel or some of the companies that got it right, they have what they call internally super user groups. So an example of modern day right now is working with Profense. Profense makes an evolution of the minigun. A minigun is... Um, if you've ever seen a helicopter that has something like in the movies, it goes right. 4,000 rounds a minute. So what they're able to do is instead of 4,000 rounds a minute, they know that if I just need to hit a target, I need not, I just need. Right. Um, they said, we're going to do variable speed motor. They knew that brushless has less downtime and less changeable parts. They know that the old school feed ramp on a Dillon is the shape of an L and it clogs up or jams the feed. So when you have a belt going through and things jam, 
when a gun jams and you're returning fire, sending fire, returning fire, whatever it is, you're in a gun battle. I don't want to have something that's L-shaped. I want something round because it's smoother and it enters the track better. So this stuff is universal. I am doing the same thing right now with, for example, AR-15s for that company, helping with the super user group on behalf of Mike Akabuchi, who's the CEO, and Mark Spicer. Mark Spicer, um, you would know him as the yes. gentleman that solved the DC sniper. You would know him as the guy that wrote um, wrote a bunch of books on the top sniper manual. You may also know him as one half of Kraft. So he was the top sniper on the planet with Chris Kyle. Americans would yes. know Chris Kyle from um, you know the American Sniper. But within the movie, he says, oh, there's this British guy and you won't understand what the bleep he's saying. That was his little wink and nod over to arguably the most impressive sniper ever, uh, which is Mark Spicer, a real good friend of mine. He was 50-50 at Kraft, uh, which was the highest training academy in the world. And um, him and I do a lot of training on anti-terrorism, counter-surveillance, and, uh, and counter-terrorism. He beat Hezbollah. He uh, guarded the Arab summit most recently. The 22 most powerful people in the world over, you know, over in the Arab summit. Uh, they're sitting on gas and they sell it like it's water. That's how rich they are. So whenever they say Bill Gates or whatever is rich, um, there's people over in the Arab nations that for a thousand years and a thousand years from now, they're selling oil, what we pay for water, and it doesn't even matter. That's what they're sitting on. So you want to talk about wealth. Yeah, maybe they don't have financials or stock statement. He is over top of them. And so he tasked me. Um, he's a tough cookie. He demands the best. He is the best. And there's no room for error over there when you're, um, when you're in the military, especially in the special forces in the tactical sector. And Mark really challenges me to come up or work with him to do the best business processes, to make the best machining centers, to have the tightest tolerances, and to really put your ear as close to the customer as possible and make exactly what SEAL Team wants, exactly what Delta wants, exactly what uh, SWAT and those guys want. And uh, a little thing that I learned at Intel, and it's, more, it's better when you're in person, but I'll lecture sometimes and um, I didn't learn it until I apologize. I learned it from Shingejitsu, uh, so Japanese doing the lean stuff. They say it starts and ends with the customer. The customer says, I want something, and then you say go, and it ends with the customer getting your product and you exchange money. And so if I'm in a big lecture hall and I'm on the far right and I see somebody kind of engaged, I'll say, I'll point right at them and they'll do deer in the headlights. And I said, if you remember one thing, I put my palm up in the air and I say, and I, I walk towards them as I'm saying this, and I say, the closer my mouth or my ear is to the customer's mouth, the closer my hand is to their wallet. Yeah. So that is starting and ending with the customer. But where is Michael now? Because you could read all that on LinkedIn. You talked about one of the projects you were talking about with Mark Spicer. Tell us some other stuff that's going on for you right now that you want to talk about. Um, one of the things that's clubhouse relevant, and I'm actually very proud of it. It's very recent. 
Um, there is a uh, young lady, Gabrielle DeSantis, and she's from Southern California, and she's the namesake of Gigi Hill. Um, she talked with me, and this was only a few weeks ago, less than, a little bit more than a month ago, and she said, my goal is to have a US-made cut and sew uh, bag line, uh, women's apparel, uh, and do this whole thing, and she said, will you talk with me? I know you do manufacturing. And I said, yeah, you know what? My parents, my initials are MFG. So I was kind of born for it. And she laughed. Um, she, uh, very beautiful woman. I, uh, I tell her she looks like Heather Locklear. Um, she's uh, Coronado, uh, California. So she's like the cool, cool stuff. And she sells millions of dollars for many years on her Gigi Hill line and some of her other brands. Well, she wants to kind of pull those silhouettes and pull that stuff into the future with the newer, better materials. Same silhouettes, but a little modern flair. And she wants it made here. And so she said she heard no everywhere. And I said, well, you have to look at it instead of we, you know, we can't because and turn that into we could if. And so one of my closest friends is Bob Hinty. Uh, he's one of the last of the Mohicans uh, in, in terms of cut and sew at scale in the United States. And I said, let's go meet up. I'm going to have your patterns and we're going to go figure out this really big story problem. We're going to figure out how to get what you have, hit the price point you want, and potentially launch a fall or winter collection. And I believe that when she has that capacity, capacity is strategy. That's also from Andy Grove. If I can make unlimited amounts, I can now be very strategic. I don't have to store inventory. I can stop on a dime. I can respond to yes. change. So two weeks after I talked to her, we were physically in a factory in Fort Wayne. I live in Ohio. She lives in Southern Cal. I don't know why the hell she'd leave there to come to Indiana, but that's where, that's where the Willy Wonka factory is. We went there, we nerded out for eight hours, and where we're at right now, present day, four weeks and a couple days later, is there's a very strong possibility that you will have two people that met on Clubhouse, that never knew each other, are a couple years apart. I definitely am not in fashion, as you can see, and I'm definitely not in women's wear, as you can yes. see. Uh, I look like the south end of a northbound jackass, so uh, I belong behind the camera, not in front of the camera. But Gabrielle is going to go and do Gigi Hill. The deal that I made with her is my mom is Grandma Giuliano, so she's Gigi. Gigi and Gigi is in the name, and my daughter is Anna Capri. So I said, what about Gigi Capri? And she said, I like that. So we agreed upon Gigi Capri, and now... Um, we need to make the market. She has salespeople all over the world and she's been very good. But what she said that she wanted to have is, hey, when I started out, I was a working mom and I'm no longer a working mom. My kids are grown up. I need that next big thing. And so uh, we have somebody that's my business partner here where we're at, which, um, you know, I hope you I hope you can meet with her someday, uh, Nicole DeMarco. She has been in front of major campaigns and she knows how to get the social media and they give the companies the biggest brands and the most trusted brands give her the keys to the car. 
What's neat about her or unique is she's also in front of the camera. So they don't hire models. She gets the whole bag. She gets the social, the Instagram, the Facebook, the salespeople, the technical marketing message, and she is incandescently bright. She, um, she does that, and then guess what? The picture that you see with the products on, she happens to do that too. And I don't know anybody that does that today. Uh, so happy to be working with her. And ideally, it's a very tough, uh, very heavy lift. It's a very, 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 very odds are against you. We're still in COVID. So to say you met somebody in California, can even get a product made in the U.S. right now is a big accomplishment. But for that to eventually scale and be potentially, it's not done yet, so I'm not going to say we, we've arrived. It's a lot of hard work. Uh, but uh, if that comes out, uh, I'm going to think that's something special. I'm going to be very proud of that. And I'll be even more proud to stick my mother and daughter's name on her brand and face the same direction and work with her and work with Nicole and work with some of these other people. So uh, that's something I'm working on right now. And it may never come to fruition, but we're giving it a hell of a try. All right. So that's very interesting, the story of Clubhouse and how if you go in with the right intention, you go in wanting to make connections, wanting to meet people, wanting to help people, that's the best way. Not have other thoughts of why you're on Clubhouse or you're using it as becoming an influencer. Clubhouse is, could be, if LinkedIn would buy it, it could be, uh, be the greatest thing in the world. Exactly. Because it's just absolutely, that's what it needs to be. Connections, networking, and then taking it offline, having these conversations like you coming into my studio today. Yeah, what do we do? I mean, this is this is timeless. People want to capture uh, the essence of me. Um, I think as a facilitator and interview viewer, I follow you with great pride. I know that, that you have a reach, a global reach, 180 co- uh, countries. countries yeah. I don't think I can name 18 countries. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I very much thank you. And this is really my honor, and this is a giant gift that you've given me. So I, I thank you very much for that. You're welcome. So the best place to connect is LinkedIn for you guys. For that's you the guys. only place, and uh, that's the only place. Find me on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, that's it. And then the company's name? Or do you have just multiple business Just things? find me, and we'll, we'll figure You'll out. You'll make that connection. Yeah. You have to connect on LinkedIn. Yeah. When you go on Clubhouse, if you do see you on Clubhouse, then just connect on LinkedIn. That's the best thing. That's the only way to get there. All me. right. Well, we appreciate it, Michael, and I'm going to shake your hand. This is because this is my first in-person interview before since COVID. So isn't that funny? I used to have all these different ones. People have won America's Got Talent. Uh, he went out there, and uh, again, Bill Medley uh, from the Righteous Brothers to just, you just wouldn't, you never know. So we appreciate it. And again, this was a special interview in my new studio here in Cranberry Township in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And this was the Neil Haley Show. Take care, guys. Please listen to the Forletta podcast. Larry Forletta, a retired DEA agent turned private investigator, will bring you true life stories on the war on drugs with some of the most infamous international drug traffickers of all time, to name a few, Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Joaquin Guzman, aka El Chapo, and other related real life crime stories such as Waco. 
more information, please visit his website at www.fcisllc.com.